One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you? Where will you be where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servants girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be willowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than which you have shown earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognised. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Thank you, Steve. Uh, keep your Bibles open. You're probably thinking uh, as we read that there's just a lot of really strange things that happen in this story. It's, it's kind of odd to us. Um, and yeah, that, that's true. There's, there's a massive cultural disconnect. Uh, but we're going to be explaining those things this morning uh, and coming to understand this passage together. So bear with us as we do that. Now you've probably heard, um, or I'm, I'm guessing you've heard, of the story of Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. Um, it's like 70 years old, so it's probably not new news. But you know that Dorothy, uh, Dorothy was sucked up by the tornado. She was, you know, dumped into, to, into Oz with her dog, uh, Toto. You know that the line, we're, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. I've never seen this movie either, actually. That's pretty sad, isn't it? Um, but, but you know the story. Like it, 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 I mean, it's a pretty scary situation for, for young Dorothy to find herself in. And it's no wonder that the rest of the movie is Dorothy you know, trying to get back uh, home to Kansas and looking for a way to, to get back to her home. And of course, you, if you've seen it, you'll know she does. Uh, actually, the way home has been with her the whole time. She's got her red uh, slippers, shoes, high heels, I don't know, red shoes on. And she gets home with that, that mantra, uh, there's no place like home. 
There's no place like home. And then she's back in Kansas. But it's such a true sentiment, isn't it? Uh, there's no place like home. Many of us would, would testify to that. Many of us would a- a- agree to it. Uh, we experienced lockdown a few months ago. We got to get very, very familiar with our homes. We began to perhaps resent them just a little bit. Now that that's changed and we're spending less time, maybe we're longing for our homes again, thinking, ah, life was so much simpler back then. I wish I could go back home. There's no place like home. Some of you, some of you take that so seriously that you literally holiday within eyesight of your homes. Like, there's no place like home, is there? Uh, It's the great Australian dream, isn't it? Home ownership. We love our home. As a concept, it's a very special, uh, very important thing, isn't it? Um, I read a a journal article this week, and uh, this is how it defined home. It said, home is a place known intimately. It's defined in terms of the kinds of relationships people have or would like to have. Deeper still, home is a representation of cultural identity and provides a collective sense of social permanency and security. There's a lot of bit of big academic words of people trying to justify their salaries in there, but, but you get the point. Home matters. Home is important to us. Now, last time we met Ruth, as Melinda pointed out, we, we saw that her immediate needs had been met. They were, they were in poverty, they were needing food and a, a source of uh, sustenance, And that was met. That was met by God's kindness through his servant Boaz. But we also saw that that chapter, chapter 2, ended with that very unusual line that kind of just was a bit off, wasn't it? That line, and she lived with her mother-in-law. There's something still yet unfulfilled in Ruth's story. She has no home of her own. God's kindness had met her immediate needs. But, But what about this? What's God going to do now? Well, Naomi sees the issue. Uh, Naomi sees the problem here. And we see that in verse 1, which kind of introduces this chapter to us. Uh, Look at verse 1. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Um, If you've got a Bible in front of you, you might notice there's a footnote there. The word home is also the word rest which we met earlier in chapter 1. Naomi says, there's a problem in your life that we need to solve. You need a place. You need a place of home, a place of rest where you can be well provided for. Relationship, identity, permanency, security, all these things that Ruth is without. How will God's kindness provide now? But even more broadening the horizons how does God's kindness provide the home and everything that it brings that you and I need that you and I are seeking well that's the question that this passage answers for us this morning that's what we're going to see together now if you've been here for the past weeks you'll know that in the the opening chapters really the groundwork for Ruth's story has been set so far we've met Ruth we've seen her determined faithfulness Uh, We've seen her hard work ethic and her care for her mother-in-law. But we've seen now this need of hers that's still up in the air. We've seen how God's been working through this story, really not in a very explicit way, but kind of behind the scenes throughout. 
He's shown himself to be kind. We learned that word chesed. You know, all the positive attributes of God gathered together and shown here. God is good, even in the circumstances of life. And we've met Boaz, the generous, godly, well-to-do Boaz, a relative of Naomi. And we heard last, uh, last time we met a kinsman redeemer, whatever that means. We'll find out shortly. So the scene is set, but now comes into play the most bizarre set of plans than you're going to read in the Bible. Look at verses 2 through 4. Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. <laughs> don't miss just how scandalous this plan is like this is pretty red hot stuff uh, you know imagine a mother-in-law saying to her daughter um, the farmer you really like it's end of harvest he's down at the pub he's had a good counter meal and some beers he's feeling good get dressed up go and wait outside and when he comes out trip him <laughs> grab him and propose to him like that's not really how we do it is it it's not really how they did it back then either this is a scandalous plan but, but that's what she says to Naomi. Put on your best clothes. Have a bath. Put on your nice perfume. Get good looking. Well, get better looking. I don't know. Go to the threshing floor. Wait till everyone's happy. And then sneak up to Boaz at night. Uncover his feet and see what go happens from there. <laughs> like, this is pretty fraught, isn't it? This is dangerous stuff. I mean, remember, we're in the time of the judges now. You remember, we, we learnt about the judges earlier in the year. A time where everyone did as was fit in his own eyes, which was bad. It's that time. So how do you think it's possibly going to go? Big party, lots of men, drinking, single woman turns up late at night. That's a dangerous situation, isn't it? This, this is risky stuff. Even with Boaz, now, we know Boaz is a good bloke, but this is Boaz at midnight, tired, uh, he's had a couple of drinks. How do you think he's going to react to a woman at his feet in the middle of the night? Do whatever he tells you, she says. You know, maybe worst case scenario, he takes it as a sexual advance. Maybe he's just going to reject her, like, go away, it's the middle of the night, woman, seriously. Everything this plan is telling us the chances of success here are very low. And the chances of disaster are very high. And yet look what Ruth does, verse 5. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly uncovered his feet and lay down. She just does it. <laughs> she does exactly what Naomi has said. Uh, but why? Why? I mean, we know Ruth is not desperate. We know that her situation is not that bad yet. Yes, she's in need, but we've seen Ruth is very level-headed, isn't she? You know, Ruth, Ruth acts very well throughout this story, but that's why she acts here. Ruth acts because she trusts. 
That's been the theme of her story throughout this book, hasn't it? it right from the very get-go, your God will be my God. She said, I've pinned my colours to his mast. I'm going to trust. And what she's learned of that God so far? She's learned that he's kind. She's learned that he's good. She's learned that he's there. And so she goes now, not trusting that this is a great plan of Naomi's, because it's not. <laughs> she trusts God. Trust that God is good. That is the place of faith. <laughs> Willing to trust and act even when things are uncertain, even when there's a great sense of unknownness, even when there's risk at stake. That is what faith in God looks like. Acting through uncertainty and risk. And I think that's not very much like us, is it? Uh, as uh, some of you know, I, I like to mountain bike. Um, it's, it's my effort to stay cool and, and relevant. Um, <laughs> if it doesn't work out, I'll just buy a convertible. Uh, then my, my midlife crisis will be complete a bit early. Uh, but anyway, if you've ever done it, mountain biking is, is you know, about riding trails, obviously. Uh, but trying to ride harder trails and trying to ride harder trails faster and, you know, just doing it. You know, the, 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 the mountain biking slogan is just send it which pretty much just says, point it downhill and go, <laughs> regardless of what's ahead. That, I'm not good at that. Uh, Melinda's very glad to hear that. I'm not good at that. I, I don't take risks very well. Uh, I got a trip booked in a couple of weeks to Medina Bike Park. Uh, everyone I've spoken to about Medina says it is dangerous. Uh, it is steep and it's fast and the trails are a bit nuts and a bit scary like exactly what mountain biking is kind of supposed to be. But, but I don't like the idea of not knowing what's ahead of me as I point my bike down that trail. So what do I do? Well, I research. That's very nerdy of me, isn't it? I research the trails. I, I read the description. I read what's coming up. I watch videos of other people going down the trails to see what's on that, that, that path so that I know when I point my bike down that hill, I know exactly what's ahead. I know that there's nothing on that trail that's going to be too dangerous or too risky for me, theoretically. But that's how we work, isn't it? That's how we as people act in life, isn't it? You know, we, we like to plan things out. We like to uh, map out all the contingencies. We, we like to remove all the unknowns and remove all the uncertainties. We're really thorough. We're really considered and really kind of conservative. And don't get me wrong, there's wisdom there. That's, that's, there's, there's definitely wisdom there but to a point. Because when we look at the Bible, when we look at Ruth and other stories as well, we see that faith is willing to take risks. Faith is willing to step out and simply trust that God is good and that God will do good. Faith takes risks. Faith knows that God doesn't tell us exactly how everything's going to pan out when we act. Faith knows that God doesn't tell us exactly how everything's going to pan out when we act because he wants us to trust him. I mean, can you imagine if God said, you know, every time you made a decision, here's exactly how that's going to work out. You know, we, we wouldn't end up trusting him, would we? We'd end up trusting what he'd said. We'd end up trusting his plan, but we wouldn't end up trusting him. And that's what God wants of us. God doesn't want us to know everything. God wants us to know him and trust him. He wants us. 
whether it is in coming to God for the very first time or whether it is walking through many years of your life with him, there are going to be times when you just don't know. An opportunity comes with uncertainty, a decision without clear direction. Now you've thought about what's right, you've, you've, thought, uh, you've planned it out as best as you can, you know you're not doing something wrong, but there's still unknowns. And that's where we just have to trust and jump. Maybe you've not yet put your trust in God. Maybe you're just checking him out and you're just not sure yet. And that's great. It is. And by all means, do that. Learn about him. Read his Bible. Read it with someone who can help you. Look into him. But there is going to come a time. There is going to come a point when you just have to take that leap. Will I trust him or not? You can't find out everything before you make that decision. You don't know how it's going to play out. You don't know where he's going to take you. You have to trust what you've learned of him, that he's good and kind. Now, maybe you have trusted him for years. Well, then continue in that trust. Keep trusting him even without all the information, even when there is risk at stake. If you, if you forever wait until you know everything about what's to come or until all risks are removed, you're never going to do anything. That's not the sort of trust that God calls us to. As individuals, we might need to trust him when it comes to crisis. You know, we, we have all our plans, we have our, 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 our way, of, our path set ahead and it all falls to pieces because something comes that we weren't expecting. And we need to trust even in the midst of that uncertainty. It might come in considering opportunities ahead. Maybe thinking through where God would have you serve him. Perhaps you're asked to, to serve in a mission or serve in a ministry. You know there's going to be a cost. It will be challenging. Maybe you need to trust him there. Maybe he's going to ask you something drastic. To give up a job perhaps. Or study or perhaps your retirement to step into some sort of ministry. It's uncertain, it's risky, isn't it? Will you trust him? What about us as a church? Will we trust him into uncertainty? Or will we simply play it safe? Will we trust him in how we use our money? in how we plan out our future as a church, in the works we might attempt, in the new ministry opportunities we might approach? Are we willing to do something drastic, even risky, simply because we trust that God is good? Now we see in this story that both Naomi and Ruth trusted in God's goodness and we see God's goodness played out to them. Look with me at verse uh, 8 through 13. Let's see how this plays out. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a, f a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do for you all you ask. 
All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. You've got to, you've got to imagine poor Boaz at this point. He's had a long day. You know, threshing wheat, hard work, big evening of celebration. He is utterly exhausted. He has fallen asleep at the end of his grain. In the middle of the night, he wakes up and his feet are freezing. You know, he's kicked the blankets. It's a horrible way to wake up. Who wants to wake up with cold feet? And he, he sits up to, to rearrange his blankets and he gets the fright of his life because there at the end of his bed is a figure in the darkness. And it's a woman, like not supposed to be there. What's going on? This is like the weirdest dream ever. You know, very logically, he asks, who are you? And essentially, she says, your wife-to-be. <laughs> like, poor old Boaz's mind is spinning by this point. And we're thinking, what on earth is going on? Like, the customs of this time are very bizarre. Let's, let's just try and explain it. Uh, Ruth says to him, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you're a kinsman redeemer. Uh, corner of your garment is literally spread your wings over me, like, like what we sung in the very first song this morning. It's a symbol. You know, when we get engaged, we give each, well, we give the woman an, an engagement ring. It's a sign of commitment to be. That's kind of the same here. This is a sign of commitment to be and what that commitment means. You know, putting your wings over someone is saying, you're close to me. Uh, you're under my protection. I'm I'm looking after you. What Ruth is saying is, I want to be yours. I want you to be near to me and look after me. And Boaz responds kind of strangely, doesn't he? He says, your kindness is great. Your kindness is greater than he he actually says. Now we, we read that and we think, well, Boaz is saying, wow, I can't believe you've chosen me. You know, there's lots of younger guys in town, probably better looking guys. I can't believe you'd choose me a bit older over all those guys. But actually, that's not it at all. If you've been here for the last few weeks, do you remember what Ruth's first kindness was? Ruth's first kindness was going with Naomi back to Israel. That was her first kindness, looking out for Naomi and seeing for Naomi's future. So what's her second kindness? It's building on that. It's actually looking out for Naomi even more. See, Ruth is not here because Boaz is so attractive as a husband. Yeah, maybe he is, but that's not the point. Ruth is here because Boaz is the key to looking out for Naomi, to extending her family line. So why? What's all this kinsman-redeemer stuff about? Well, let me try to explain it. Uh, It's a reference to Israel's law and customs, a bit like what Melinda was talking about. So we've got to remember the land was one of the great promises of God. Here is your promised land that you will inherit. What did they do before they went into the land? They spent a whole bunch of time divvying it up. This bit belongs to you and this bit belongs to you and this bit belongs to you and it is in your family. And it wasn't I don't imagine there were you know, real estate agents or property managers or anything like that. Your land belonged to your family. It was inherited. Even if you sold it, even if you had it taken away from you, uh, after so many years, that land was restored back to you. 
it automatically became yours again. But here's the catch. If your family line ended, your land was forfeited. And it was forfeited to someone else. You lost it. So let's say someone got married. Someone got married, but before they could have children to extend that line and to hold on to that land, the husband died. That was a disaster. Because not only was that wife now a widow, her inheritance of land was also forfeit. That family line was coming to an end. Airless. And so just in case that happened, the law said, let's make a provision for that. The husband's brother will marry that widow, take her as a wife, and give her a child to continue that family line in that name. That land that was forfeited is now redeemed. And the person acting in that, the man acting in that way, was known as a kinsman redeemer. And so Ruth comes to Boaz and says, you are my kinsman, you are our kinsman redeemer. Now let's note something here. Technically he's not. He's not Elimelech's brother, he's not Ruth's husband's brother. So according to the law, he is not technically the kinsman redeemer. There is no obligation. Boaz isn't actually required by the law to do anything at all. He can acknowledge that this is a sad situation and say, but I've got my own obligations to my own family over here. I don't have to do anything. But he has the option of it because he's related. So he could step in if he wanted, but he doesn't have to. And yet he does. And as Melinda said, at great cost to him. His own line, his own inheritance... He's now put at stake. And what's more, his own life is being given in in marriage. You know, this is no small thing that Boaz is being asked to do here. And yet, that's exactly what he does. I will do it, he says. You know, it's, it's, it's utterly astonishing. This totally nuts plan with almost no chance of success goes right ahead. It pays off. It's not a disaster. It is as good as could possibly be expected. How, I mean, how is this possible? How is this all happening? Well, Boaz actually says it right there, doesn't he? Boaz explains exactly how this most unlikely thing could happen. In verse 10, the Lord bless you. It's it's that simple, isn't it? You know, Boaz recognises what's going on at the heart of this story. It's not good people acting towards one another. It's God acting for them. Yes, Boaz is a good bloke, but God is a great God. And God is the one at work here. And so now Ruth and Naomi's deep need is being met. Their need for security and permanence and identity and peace is being provided for. Their place is found. It's a a lovely outcome, isn't it? It's a lovely tying together of this story it's 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 really beautiful but do you know why it's really beautiful it's really beautiful because it is a picture of how God acts Ruth's material situation is a picture of our bigger and deeper spiritual situation 
And we know peace, we know having a place, having security is, is a good thing, that's undeniable. And we know it's what we need. And we need it because we didn't, we don't have it. Because the Bible says, you and I, we didn't have that. We were far off. Um, if you go all the way back to Genesis 3, you see what, what happens when people reject God. What happens is they were taken out of the place that God had made for them. They were forced to leave and go away. And the Bible says that is who we are. Spiritual refugees. Spiritual orphans. We'd been displaced. Uh, if you've ever met refugees or orphans, you, I mean, you know the, the difficulties they face. Obviously, obviously their situation is, is incredibly hard, um, you know, displaced and alone and, and vulnerable. But there's so many other things that, that flow from that, aren't there? So many other issues. Uh, the Bible's saying that was us. Not only did we suffer from our terrible situation, but we suffered the consequences as well. We were spiritually homeless. We were spiritual refugees. And not because of something that had happened to us, not because of some external situation that had worked on us, but because of our own choice. We were the ones who'd left. We were the ones who'd turned our back on God. We'd said, look, I mean, it looks great over there. Let's, let's go that way. Only to find their despair. We have this huge insecurity hanging over our heads. You know, it, it's like being in debt to a loan shark. <laughs> you know, that, that, that debt, that's an enormous insecurity, isn't it? You, you know, you're forever chipping away at it, but forever fearing because that debt could be called in at any moment. And, and, and then where would you be left? Uh, there was a, a story on the news about a couple not long ago in that situation. That, their debt wasn't even huge. It was about, about $10,000. And yet it got handed over to a collection company and just out of the blue they were sued for bankruptcy and they lost everything, they lost their house. That's the sort of insecurity we live in. It's a sort of lack of peace and, and constant fear that we have. Who's going to help us? Who's going to rescue us? Who's going to redeem? Because where Ruth and Naomi had a next of kin, who is there for us? Hebrews 2 says Jesus was not ashamed to call them that is us brothers do you hear that that there is a family member he wasn't obligated under any law to help he wasn't required to do it but he came and he chose to be family he chose to call us brothers in order that he could stand in as our kinsman redeemer and that's what he did he bought us out he paid off the bad debt of our sin he redeemed us out of lostness Ephesians 2:13 says this but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ Jesus' death has paid the price to set us free, has paid the price to bring us close, and has paid the price to give us a place. Here's his promise in John 14 to all his followers. 
In my father's house are many rooms. I am going there to prepare a place for you. You have a place in him. You who once were far off have the promise of a home, an eternal home security and safety and identity and permanency all in Jesus all yours by the immense kindness of God if you simply trust him all that we are longing for is found in him because his own son became like us to redeem us at the immense cost of his own life that we could have rest. So we can trust him. We can trust him because of what he's promised, what he's given to us. We can trust him even if we have to wait for it. Because did you notice, there's a little fly in the ointment of Ruth's story here, isn't there? It's just a little problem. <laughs> it all looks like it's going great. You know, Boaz has responded in this wonderful way. It looks like everything's going to pan out. And then, there's another redeemer. <laughs> it's, it's not going to work out. What's, what's going to happen? There's, what does Boaz say? There's a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. That is with a greater claim who, who stands before me. I mean, what, what's going to happen? Are Ruth and Boaz going to ever finally get together? Is this great guy going to be the great redeemer that we need? The stage has been set. Now, now there's a stumble just before the line. And you're going to have to wait to find out what happens. Uh, sorry, we're going to have to come back in a couple of weeks. But we don't go without a sign of hope. Because look how Boaz sends Ruth home. Look at verse 15. He also said, Bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. Uh, when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So Ruth comes home from this very dramatic evening and she comes home bearing uh, six measures of barley. That sounds a little bit strange to us. I mean, imagine sending your fiancé whom you've just proposed to home with, you know, six loaves of bread. You know, a bit weird. <laughs> But it's more than that, isn't it? Uh, six measures is not a small amount. Uh, six measures is a sack. You know, this is kind of 30 to 60 pounds of barley. You know, she's got to heft it on her back with Boaz's help. What, what, what Boaz is saying essentially is, what's mine is yours. All that, all that I have, I'm going to share with you as your redeemer. My riches, my source of income, I'm sharing it with you. And finally, when Ruth gets home, Naomi's waiting for her. Uh, literally, she asks her a very strange question. Literally, she says to her, who are you? You think, uh, duh, like your daughter-in-law, remember? Uh, but but it, it's a loaded question. What she's asking is, are you Mrs. Boaz yet? 
<laughs> how, how'd it go? Has that come through? Now you might think Ruth would be a bit down, but, but Naomi's not, because Naomi sees the significance of what Boaz has done here. Look at, she says, uh, the man will not rest until the matter's settled, settled today. You know, Naomi's looking forward. She sees what's coming in Boaz's words, but also in this gift of grain. She sees a promise there. Yes, there's a hitch, but there's also hope. We have to wait, but fulfillment is coming. Everything we've hoped for is on the way. <laughs> now, we're not good at this, are we? <laughs> we? We like instant gratification. Waiting is really not how we do things. Now, I, I remember as a kid you know, getting my very first packet of seeds. I remember it very clearly. It was a packet of carrot seeds. It had Mickey Mouse on the cover. They were going to be the best carrots ever. I was, I was so excited. Uh, we, we got home. We planted them very carefully, covered them very carefully, watered them in. And the next morning, would you believe there was nothing? Like, oh, it was devastating. The next day, there was still nothing. This gardening thing is a complete hoax. Uh, eventually, after about, I don't know, a week or two, uh, there was something. There was a little green shoot, so I pulled it out, and there was still no carrot. Like, yeah, I think this is where my dislike of gardening was born. But can, it takes forever, didn't it? And, of course, then we went on holiday and we came back and the carrots were in seed and inedible, so I never got them. But, 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 but that's the thing. It's, it's frustrating, isn't it? We, we want things now. We want it today. But that's the tension here, the tension of waiting, the tension of waiting for that fulfilment. And it's a tension that not only Ruth has to live in for this, this night, for this morning, it's a tension we have to live in as well. Uh, we call it the, the, the already and the not yet, the, the, the now and the not yet. Yes, we have the promises of God. Yes, we have God's redemption through Jesus, our Redeemer. But we still have to wait for the completion, for the fulfillment of it. Yes, we have a home. But moving day is still, a, still ahead. Now we don't have to pretend that's easy. It sucks. Waiting sucks. We all know that. Uh, the Bible acknowledges it in Romans 8. You know, it calls, calls our day today groaning, the day of groaning. You know, we're, we're longing for that day. We, we experience the hurts of this world, its, it's frustrations, its disappointments, its sufferings. We, we long for that day. We groan waiting for it. But it's there. It's ours in Jesus. Just not yet. It's certain, but it's not here. Now, there are good things here, absolutely. There is so much we can enjoy. Uh, God has blessed us. God has provided for us materially, physically, spiritually. Uh, he's given us work to do. He's given us his spirit to, to assure us and to keep us and to uh, help us serve his people. So enjoy what he's given. But never forget there is better ahead. His home is waiting for us and he will take us there. We read that promise that Jesus made before of, of his father's house and the room he's preparing. Uh, this is what he goes on and says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. See, Jesus isn't just preparing a place in the hope that we might turn up one day. Uh, 
he's not preparing a room so that we know might find it eventually. He's preparing a room so that he can come and get us and bring us there to be with him. There is nothing you need that he has not provided for you. In his immense kindness, he has redeemed your life brought out of hopelessness to peace and to security and to a place in himself forever. So trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we want to praise you for your immense kindness to us. For Father, you have redeemed us out of hopelessness. We were so far away in our sin, but you have brought us near. For Jesus' blood has paid the price of the debt of our sin to bring us close to you, to secure our eternity and life in you. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness to us. And Father, we pray that you would help us to see what you have done for us in Jesus, to see your kindness and love and mercy there, and trust you, and trust you in everything. Father, help us to trust you when things are uncertain. Help us to trust the promises that you've made. Help us to trust you and be willing to take risks for you and step out into the unknown knowing how good and loving and kind you are. We pray this in Jesus, our Saviour's name. Amen.